Psalm 1 reads, How happy is the one who does not walk in the advice of the wicked, or stand in the pathway with sinners, or sit in the company of mockers. Instead, his delight is in the Lord's instruction, and he meditates on it day and night. He is like a tree planted beside flowing streams that bears its fruit in its season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. The wicked are not like this. Instead, they are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand up in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to ruin. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. And I ask that you join me for another moment in prayer. Lord, you're so gracious. You're so faithful. You're merciful. You're loving. You're kind. And your word teaches us and shows us and reminds us that you are all of those things. Father, the book of Psalms in particular (laughs) is over 100 songs that tell of how you are all of this and more. And so we just rejoice in you, God. We give you thanks for being all that you are. And we pray that as we seek to study your word now, that you would inform us in more ways of who you are, uh, that you would teach us about yourself and your word and ourselves and, and, uh, and help us to take heed to what is uh, laid out for us in these scriptures so that we might leave this place uh, able to be more faithful to you through dependence upon your Holy Spirit. God, we recognize that we are completely and utterly dependent upon you for wisdom and guidance, but we also recognize that you've been gracious to give us wisdom and guidance in your holy word. And so we thank you for it. And I pray that you'd make us a people that are faithful to live by it, that are faithful to study it, to take heed to it, to meditate on it day and night, to take delight in it, to recognize how great of a gift it is, and to devote our lives to following the instructions that it lays out. Father, I pray that as I stand and attempt to preach your word this morning, uh, that you would use me, that you would give me strength in ways that only you can, that you would make up for all my insufficiencies, that you would even make up for uh, ailments and and things like sinus infections. Father, none of that stuff gets in the way of your word going forward and building up your church. So I pray and ask that we would see that manifest here this morning. Give me grace. to have clarity in my thought, uh, concision, and, and, and a level of unction in my speech, uh, not for my own pride and, and, and self-righteousness and glory, but Father, for your glory and your glory alone and for the good of your church. I'm fully dependent upon you, Father. No man, no mortal sinful man is able to communicate on your behalf without flaw. But we thank you that you're gracious to still allow the message to be received and to penetrate into the depths and hearts and souls of your people. So I pray and ask that you do that today. If there be any among us that don't know you, might this be a day where you give them the gift of conviction over sin and repentance and faith. And might you glorify yourself in it all, Lord. So I do pray 
all of these things for the glory of your name and dependence upon your spirit and in the name of your son, Christ Jesus. Amen. So the book of Psalms, also known as the Psalter, the hymn book for the Old Testament people of God, the generationally transcendent playlist for all times and all seasons, the songbook that God's people can pick up and always be met right where they are, the book of joy for dark days, the book of sobriety for mountaintop days, the book of lament for lamentful days, the book of praise for praiseworthy days, the book of protest for days of injustice, the book of wisdom for days with decisions, the book of comfort for days with heartache, the book of assurance for days of fear and worry, the book of battle cry for days of war, the book of victory for days of triumph, the book of songs, the Psalter, this ancient playlist for God's people is all of these things and more. I love the book of Psalms. And I think God's been extremely gracious to give us a book like this within his holy word. I mean, the book of Psalms truly is a book that seems to meet you wherever you are. You can pick it up at any time and be met by the Lord. You can see someone who's been where you've been before and see how they had hope of being met by the Lord. It's a testament about the word of God from the word of God itself. It's a testament that God truly has given us his word in the Holy Bible in such a way that is him providing us with guidance and instruction to help us live lives that glorify him in every season we face. The Psalms is it's a compilation of poetry, songs, even diary entries, if we want to call them that. And they all show how God was active in the lives of his people during the many different seasons that they walked through. The songs show us that those who authored them would run to God in his word, no matter what state their lives were in, and they'd be reminded that God is faithful to those who pursue him. And so it only seems fitting, right? That the very first one, the very first chapter, this, this first psalm within the Psalter, is one that paints this picture of there being two paths to walk. One path is a path of, of righteousness and, and prosperity, and it, it, it's taken up by those who delight in God and his word. And the other path is a path of wickedness, and, and, and it's treaded by those who do not delight in God and his word. And so in studying this first psalm this morning, I want us to consider the two ways that it lays out for us to walk. First, we'll look at the prosperous way of the righteous. Then we'll see the perilous way of the wicked. And then thirdly, after considering these two ways that, that humans have to choose from, we'll think about the perceptive way of God. There's the prosperous way of the righteous, the perilous way of the wicked, and there's the perceptive way of God. So first, let's consider the righteous and how the righteous way is prosperous. Now, looking at the first few words of the psalm, we got to do a bit of thinking. Uh, I first become curious when reading the word happy as it's translated here in the CSB. Now, some of your translations may have words such as, as, as blessed or well or joyous, or maybe your translation like mine, like the CSB that we use here, simply has the word happy. And I love that the CSB uses this word. Those of us who've been in church for a while have probably at some point or another heard a pastor say something like this. God doesn't want you to be happy. 
He wants you to be joyous. Or maybe you've heard a pastor say that God is not concerned with your happiness as much as he's concerned with your holiness. Or maybe they've said things like worldly happiness and biblical joy have nothing in common. And I want to assume the best about these pastors. As a matter of fact, I would even affirm the intent behind each of those statements. I myself have said things that are similar to those statements from this pulpit right here. But here's the thing. When we so often talk about joy and happiness as if they're mutually exclusive or just pit against one another, we as Christians can start to be skeptical of any promise of happiness or we can subconsciously stink, uh, start to think that, that joy is, is a state that is always absent of happiness and must always mean that we're c- consistently fighting for contentment amidst troubles. And I want to be clear, that, that, that is what joy sometimes must be. Sometimes joy in the Lord calls for us to, to wrestle for inward contentment when we're facing outward trials. But this Hebrew word that the psalmist uses here, ashrei is the word, it can sometimes be translated as blessed. Like I said, some of your translations may even have the word blessed here. But there's a completely different Hebrew word with a different root that most plainly means what we would understand blessed to be in the English language. Uh, one commentator wrote about this word, ashrei, that no single English word captures the full sense of ashrei. Those who are ashrei are in a state of total well-being. They lack nothing, are delivered from trouble, and are wealthy and have successful children. That commentator was making the point that this word not only communicates blessing in the way that we Christians can sometimes think about it as if it's only spiritual and not largely affecting the day-to-day physical parts of our lives, but no, this word actually does communicate a sense of physical well-being. It actually does communicate a sense of physical blessing toward the end of fulfillment and fortunate life experience. So what am I getting at with all of this? Well, to put it plainly, I think that Psalm 1 can pretty much be summed up as a psalm that teaches us about how some, those who are deemed righteous, are those who choose to know and live by God's word, while others, those who are deemed as wicked, choose not to live or know and live by God's word. And when the psalmist uses this word, ashrei, this word for happy or blessed. I think he's conveying that God's word not only informs us about how we can live with joy amidst troublesome and turbulent times, but it is also informative about and makes us wise to know how it is that we can pursue lives of fulfillment and meaning and fortune and well-being. And yet, I'm going to say it because the, the psalmist wrote it. Happiness. So is it the case that God is more concerned with your holiness than he is your happiness? Absolutely. That is the case. But could it be the case that God is also concerned with your happiness? Absolutely. He's a good God who delights in giving good blessings to his people. And this ain't prosperity gospel. (laughs) This isn't the prosperity gospel. This is just the truth that sometimes the grace that God extends to save us from sin is extended to offer us earthly goods as well. Like praise be to God, right? Sometimes he does that. And now we live in a broken world where sin rages and and people suffer and and persecution abounds. And so it isn't going to be this way all the time. As a matter of fact, it will often not be this way. Some of God's people experience frequent suffering. But some of God's people experience great blessing and many gracious gifts as well. And it's my hope that they steward them for the glory of his name. Any of us 
who God chooses to give flourishing and fortune to should steward it for his glory. But at this point, in talking about happiness, here's the thing that we must have in mind. What God's word tells us, and whether it informs us about and makes us wise for the pursuit of well-being, will not be the same thing that the world tells us. See, while God is concerned with our happiness, he's concerned in a way that is different from the world's concerns. See, this world's view of happiness and, and, and where it's found and how you should pursue it, it's a distorted view that is rooted in sin unless it seeks to bring glory to God while happiness is being experienced. But the word of God, it teaches us about what true happiness is and what the true godly pursuit of happiness looks like. The psalm itself actually shows these differing views in the ways that it reads. Remember I said that the first few words of the psalm are going to require us to do some thinking. Well, the second thing we ought to think about in reading this is that the psalmist explains what the happy, righteous person is like by first telling us what he doesn't do. And to give a quick summary, that's him saying that the righteous, happy person doesn't follow the ways of the world. You see that he lists the, the wicked and the sinners and the mockers, and he says the happy, righteous man does not walk in their advice. He does not stand in their pathway. He does not sit in their company. But isn't that strange? He speaks positively about the happy man and his righteous path by telling us about the negative things that he does not do. I mean, imagine if we were having a conversation and in trying to speak positively about my wife, I walked up and, and, and said something like, like, man, my wife is a good wife. She does not nag me. You probably wouldn't believe me. <laughs> or say you go to somebody's house and, and they've got a dog. And they greet you at the door by saying, hey, welcome. Our dog is a good dog because he is not aggressive. It's the first thing they tell you. Or say somebody wants to brag about a restaurant. And they speak positively about this restaurant by saying, like, yo, like Chick-fil-A is a boss restaurant. They never burn the French fries. It's like, if somebody spoke in this way, probably wonder why they thought you'd assume certain things about a restaurant or a wife or a dog. You'd wonder if their past experiences made them speak in this reactive kind of way. If there were experiences of their past which made them give positive comments by telling of the negatives that might have been assumed. This psalmist has lived his entire life among human beings. And his experience tells him that he and we and any reader of this psalm should assume a sinful nature to be the default for human beings. He's assuming for us what can rightly be assumed about every human being. That we're sinful by nature. And that the world is going to tempt us and try to influence us to give in to our sinful nature. That's what he assumes in verse one. That's why he starts with these, these, these negative way or these negative ways of showing positives about the happy, righteous person. When he speaks positively about the happy, righteous, prosperous man, he first tells these negatives that the man avoids because he knows that for all other than Christ Jesus, the temptations toward these negatives will be there. And the only way that they're not given into is if the person actually fights against them. And so you can assume he's saying about people, we're sinful by nature. And so if somebody's going to be righteous, if you're going to talk about their righteousness, you're also almost going to talk about, immediately almost going to talk about what it is that they don't do before you even get to what it is that they do. And I know that some people may not like to hear this. 
Somebody's probably sitting there right now and, and thinking to themselves, it's like, well, I hear you preacher dude, but, but what you're saying is that we should be cynical of ourselves. Like, how is it that being cynical of myself actually helps me? Well, I'm glad you asked, my friend. This isn't cynicism. Let me give you a slightly different perspective. I think this is more so realism. I'm not asking you to be cynical of yourself. I'm asking you to be real with yourself about your sinful nature. And listen, I, I don't exhort us to, to kind of accept this about ourselves so that we feel down or, or, or beat ourselves down or look down upon ourselves. I'm telling you this so that we can see how great a need we have to look up to the Lord. It's not about looking down upon yourself. It's about seeing your need to look upwards and, and, and relish in who Christ is. This isn't about cynicism. It's about being real. I want you to be real with yourself, about yourself, and the sinfulness of yourself, and your insufficient ability to save yourself. I mean, it's written in the Lord's Word later in Psalm 51. I was sinful from my mother's womb, David says. And that same thing that David writes is true of every single person that's ever born except Christ Jesus himself. We don't have to be taught to sin. (laughs) It comes natural. I mean, think about the natural human progression. Like, think about how that works. We don't have to instruct toddlers about how they can go and be sinful. (laughs) I can guarantee you, you give a toddler time and they'll figure that out. They'll get it down to a science. They know how to sin. What we have to teach them is how they pursue righteousness. How they choose to walk the way of the happy, righteous, prosperous man. When we get to verse 2, the psalmist tells us a little bit more about this happy, righteous, prosperous person and and he tells us a little bit about their ways. Here he actually starts to speak positive about them. And he says, his delight is in the Lord's instruction. And he meditates on it day and night. And so we've already dealt with what the righteous, happy person does not do. But what is it that they do? The psalmist tells us here that they're one who delights in God's word. And so they meditate on it day and night. That's what they do. They have a heart that is set to delight in the word. This word delight means what you think it does. It means to to find joy in, to relish, to to pleasure in, to wish for it. it. It's got a connotation of actually wanting and desiring something so that you relish in it if you attain it. And the text says that the righteous delight in the word. And then from that inward delight flows the outward action of meditation on the word day and night. Praise might not mean what some of you think it does. See, some of us may assume that meditation is this kind of uh, sitting on a pillow, you know, legs crossed, eyes closed, uh, hands up like Buddha kind of thing. Other of us, of us may think that meditation is what those who do yoga do when they're in their yoga sessions. Or maybe even, it may be even something that some of us view as, as, as strange and creepy. Uh, the f- first week of my freshman year in college, I was getting accustomed to a life in a dorm with a roommate. Uh, my roommate was a teammate of mine on the football team. But he was, um, he was a, a, a one-of-a-kind type of man. I never met anybody like him. And to this day, I've never met anybody else like him. I probably never will. And the first week we were there, we moved into our dorm. And my side of the room was, was nearest to the entrance. That's where the light switch was. His side of the room was, was on in the room, and, and, and it was right across from where our vanity mirrors and, and dressers and everything were. 
And so oftentimes when we were getting ready to go to bed, you know, if we were going to bed at the same time, uh, I'd do lights out, you know, just kind of the expectation. I'm right here. I can reach the light switch from my bed. I turn the lights off. And so we do that one night. We both get into bed. I turn the lights off and I'm laying there and I realize that I forgot to put my retainers in. And so I get up in the dark. I walk over to uh, the, the, the vanity mirror, which is across from his bed. Now picture this. I'm standing here. I'm looking into a mirror. There are retainers that I'm trying to get, but I can't see them because it's dark. Our vanity had a little dim light that you could turn on. So I flipped that light switch to turn the dim light on. And then I reach, I grab my retainers. And then as I'm grabbing them to put my retainers in, I look up in the mirror. And what I see is my roommate meditating. And this, y'all, y'all didn't respond like I thought you would. So you're obviously not seeing what I'm seeing. Um, he's sitting there in his bed doing the, the Buddha type thing. And it looked just like you would imagine it does in a horror film. He's sitting there, and, 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 and his eyes are kind of rolled to the back of his head. And when I flip the light on, he, he slowly drops his head and then turns and looks at me. And so naturally, I screamed. <laughs> I did what people would do in that situation. Like, this isn't something you get up and expect to see. I just wanted to put my retainers in. The experience scared me so bad that whenever I come across this word meditation in Scripture, I have to remind myself of what it actually means. My roommate comes to mind, and I have to flood that thought to to think about what meditation actually is. It it, it is not what I witnessed from my roommate that night, nor is it any of the other examples I mentioned earlier. When the psalmist says that the righteous one meditates on God's word, he's talking about a deliberate clenching of God's word with our minds. It's the purposeful choice to keep God's word at the forefront of your mind and just kind of rotating in your thoughts as you're going throughout your day. At its root, the word for meditate here has an association with the idea of murmuring under one's breath. Remember, this was during a day where Bibles and and, and copies of God's word weren't easily accessible and they weren't heavily printed like we've been blessed to, 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 to have them today. And so God's people would have to memorize his word. And then as they went throughout their days, they continually murmured under their breath, keeping it with them, clinging to it, and cherishing it as their guidance for life. How happy is the one who does not walk in the advice of the wicked or stand in the pathway with sinners? You people, see people just murmuring, meditating upon the word. We were in sermon lab this week, and Jimmy said something that I actually like. He said meditation, when he thinks about it, is like mental chewing gum. You stick it in your minds and, and, and you just continually chew on it as you go throughout your day. And the psalmist is saying that for the righteous, happy ones who delight in God's word, this is just what you do. We don't, really meet our, we don't merely read our Bibles to check a box. We delight in God's word. We don't merely come to church and hear the word once a week. We try to take it with us and, and we meditate on it. We keep it in our minds day and night, the text says. And I do want to go off and, and, and give kind of a brief aside here. I know that there are some of you in the room who are in seasons of life that make a daily quiet time or devotional time really hard to come by. I'm, I'm thinking particularly of my moms with young children. Infants and toddlers don't make it easy to sit down and quietly commune with God. And so I want to encourage you. I don't think this passage is necessarily calling us to to have a rigid scheduled time where we get in the word each and every single day. I strongly encourage that if you've got the ability to have that rhythm, but if you're not, young moms, do your best to get it where you can. 
Wherever you can be exposed to God's word, get that exposure and soak in it and treat the word like crumbs from your favorite dessert. And I believe that if you do that, then the Lord will use those crumbs. If you take them and delight in them and and meditate on them, I believe God will maximize those crumbs and use them to encourage your soul. And to take this a bit further to the husbands of these moms and take heed to the apostle Paul's command for you and wash your wife with the word of God. And I wonder if, if motherhood with young children was one thing that Paul had in mind when he wrote that in Ephesians five, right? A good husband washes his wife with the word so that he could present her holy to Christ. So wash your wives with the word, man. If you get to sit and commune with God more regularly than she does, Bring her some of what you get from your time of communing with him. Just tell her how the Lord's encouraged you, what he's shown you in his word. Help her to delight as you delight. And it's not just husbands. I think that we should be doing this as a corporate church body. We got to be committed to, to building the word into one another. Like make it a habit to regularly bring up and discuss what you're taking away from the word. Talk about the sermons. As you talk after church, ask people what the most encouraging part of the passage was. To those of us who have more time than others, an organic way that you can serve your church body is by grabbing one of these young, busy, fast-living church members and just committing to regularly pray for them, treat them to good times when you can, treat them to good company when you're able to, and be a source of regularly ministering the word to them. That's one way that you can serve the church. That's what God calls his people to. It's riddled all throughout the New Testament in in, in the letters that, that Paul and the apostles write. God wants his people to be doing this for one another. It's one of the ways that he uses us to sustain one another. The righteous delight in God's word, and we meditate on it day and night. So we must aim to do this ourselves and aim to help one another in doing it. And if we do, verse 3 tells us that we'll be like a tree planted beside flowing streams that bears its fruit in its season with leaves that don't wither and prospering in all that we do. That sounds like a happy, happy, prosperous life, doesn't it? I'm sure that trees that are planted beside flowing streams are extremely happy. Whatever it looks like for a tree to be happy, I'm sure these trees are it. And it's worth noting that the text says the streams are flowing streams. So this isn't some pond or puddle. It's not a a steel body of water that has a chance of drying up. No, God's word, friends, is, is, is a flowing, ever full, self-replenishing source of provision to his people. God's word never runs dry. It's the very source of life for his people in all seasons that we walk through. The passage tells us that this tree beside this stream, metaphorically God's people receiving his word, it bears fruit in its season and it has leaves that do not wither. Now make sure you actually understand that picture. There may be a specific season where fruit is, is ready and ripe and visible and able to be taken and eaten and then bragged on by others. But as long as this tree is receiving from the stream, its leaves don't wither. And that's an indication that it is always in good health, even when others aren't noticing and boasting in its products. It says there's always prosperity. Everything the tree does is considered prosperous because it's being nourished with the flowing stream that makes it able to have ongoing vitality and health so that whatever it puts out is good as a reflection of the good stream that it's drinking from. And isn't that a picture of what God's word is for us? I mean, think about it. God's word reveals more to us about him. 
It reveals and teaches us about ourselves. It helps us to understand the world around us. It teaches us what goodness truly is. And as a byproduct, it helps us be producers of good. So that's how it's able to make us prosperous in our actions, because it teaches us to act in ways that honor God. And any action which honors God is good. It's a prosperous one. This is why the way of the righteous is a prosperous way. But then the psalmist starts to tell us about the wicked. And just like we see the prosperous way of the righteous in verses one through three, we see the perilous way of the wicked in verses four through five. The perilous way of the wicked. The interesting thing about verse four is that the psalmist doesn't give us a lot of detail when he talks about the wicked's ways. He just tells us that they're not like the happy righteous one. And then he tells us that the end result for them is one of perishing. And so I guess we can just kind of assume from his summary of them when he says that they're not like this. I guess he's saying that that they're the opposite of everything he's already mentioned. They don't delight in God's word. They don't meditate on it. They don't bear fruit like a tree beside flowing streams. And looking back up to verse one, we could assume that they do live by the world's ways and stand in the pathway of sinners and sit in the company of mockers. I'm not going to spend much time here because the psalmist doesn't. But I do think it's worth asking ourselves if we've ever thought about how our lack of doing what verses two through three lay out is a sign of wickedness. Uh, We may think of wickedness as only being external, like like visibly wicked, evil, sinful actions. But what if there's also the, the, the lack of righteousness that is an indicator of wickedness? I mean, notice that there's no middle ground in this passage. The psalmist only talks about the happy, righteous, prosperous ones and the wicked sinners and mockers. And so this implies that we're either one or the other. We're either delighting in God's word, producing fruit as we take it in, or we're not. This is why true Christianity is is not just about a verbal profession. I mean, yes, it is a verbal communication of what we believe, but there must also be a lived out manifestation of what we believe. And the psalmist says that's what the wicked lack. They walk in the advice of the wicked world. They stand in the pathway of sinners. They sit in the company of mockers. Did y'all catch the progression with those three scenarios? The psalmist may be suggesting to us that sinfulness seems to start with a mental consideration. This is the, the, the walking in the advice of the wicked world. It's when you take advice from the world. So you say, how do uh, these news broadcasters say that I should process this world event. You know, I know that this has happened and and God's word probably speaks about it, but what does this rapper or this musician have to say about the issue? What are people saying on social media? What do the CEOs and, and, and major companies of our day say that love should actually be defined as? And then it progresses to standing with them. This is when you're okay being seen around sinfulness. Oh, I'll just, I'll just hang out with them. You know, I I know that they're probably going to, to get drunk and get high, but, but, but when they go get drunk and high, I'm not actually going to get drunk or high myself. So it's, it's okay. Or, you know, if I only laugh at the clean jokes, it's okay for me to engage in this conversation that praises immorality and, and, and gossips, gossips about people. I'm not the one who's saying it. I said, oh, it's, it's just a TV show or book or song. I know it's terrible content for my soul, 
But it's okay as, as, as long as I don't actually start to reflect what I'm seeing, hearing, and reading. As, as long as I don't start to live in those ways, I should be okay. And then it moves to sitting in their company. This is when you're established among sinfulness, maybe even without even realizing it. See, I, I know they're not a Christian, but we really get along and, and they treat me nicely and they look good. And so I'm going to date them anyways. I'll, I'll just break up with them if they don't eventually come to know Christ. Now here's one that's relevant. So yeah, I, I'll go to the Pride Festival. You know, I'm not gay, but I've got gay friends and I want to be a good friend by supporting them and going to rally around this cause. Or, and I know we're not married, but we're so in love and, 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 and I guess that makes it okay for us to move in together. Or maybe a little bit lighter. You know, it's okay for us to sleep in the same bed when we're dating as long as we don't actually move in together. How about my fellows in the room? Like, yeah, I cracked one bad joke. It's not that big of a deal. It's just, here's the phrase that kind of goes around. It's just guys being guys. <laughs> just dudes being dudes. The wicked. They walk and advice. And then they stand. And then they sit down among sinfulness. This is basically a reinforcement of what the Apostle James writes in James 1, 14 through 15. But each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desire. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. This is the way sin works, friends. And if we aren't purposely choosing to go the way of the righteous, we might unintentionally be going the way of the wicked. And this is a scary thing because according to the rest of verses 4 and and, and verse 5, the way of the wicked is a perilous one that results in our destruction. The psalmist says the wicked are like chaff that the wind blows away. Now this is in contrast, I believe he's doing this on purpose, I think he's contrasting the tree that is is planted and rooted and is there for the long haul. Chaff is is a worthless dust-like husk that, that surrounds the seed of whatever plant it's a part of, and then as the plant kind of matures and blossoms, chaff eventually blows away as if it's dust. If you've never heard of chaff, there's probably a reason for that. It's because chaff is useless and is unremarkable. Nobody talks about it until you see it mentioned in God's word. And the psalmist paints a picture of the wind blowing it out of significance. So we don't want to be like chaff. We don't want to be considered wicked by God or he might blow us out of significance. Verse five says that the wicked won't stand up in the judgment of God and the sinners won't stand in the assembly of the righteous. I think that's the psalmist taking our minds to the ultimate peril. So this judgment in one sense, it might be judgment that one sees on earth as the Lord makes them suffer consequences for their wicked actions. But even if it isn't that, it will be this in eternity. All who die wicked and unredeemed by Christ will suffer an eternal judgment and be excluded from the people of God. They'll be excluded as he assembles them, like the end of verse 5 says, into a heavenly kingdom. And reading this, friends, should not only make us concerned for our own spiritual state and our own positioning before God, but it should make us saddened for those who are still living in wickedness. I mean, there are people out in the world living glorious, earthly lives that are going to mean absolutely nothing in the end. Even now, in their temporary distractedness and and false-fulfilling life, they're perishing. And they're going to perish for all of eternity. 
And so when we read this, we should, we should seek to, to make sure that we're walking the way of the righteous, but we should also seek to be zealously burdened to share the truth of our God with those who are not. No one who lives in wickedness and does not find righteousness in Christ will escape the judgment of God. The way of the wicked is always perilous. And the reason this is always guaranteed is because the way of God is a perceptive way. So let's talk about the perceptive way of God. It's a true, sobering reality that God sees all and knows all. There's nowhere we can go to hide from the eye of God. And the psalmist gives a reminder of this in verse 6. It says, For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to ruin. This verse implies that God sees both the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. According to the end of the verse, him seeing the wicked in their ways results in him leaving them for ruin. It's almost as if, as if the Lord just kind of completely disregards them. The, the wicked mean nothing. They are like chaff that's blown away by the wind. And that's what hell, which is the eventual uh, destination for the wicked, that's what it is. It's a place of eternal judgment, eternal punishment, where God has removed his presence from those who are there. And the only thing left for them to experience is the ruinous yet never-ending wrath of God. He perceives the wicked, and he leaves them to experience ruin. But we should know that this watches over when it's talking about the way of the righteous. It's a kind of watching over that brings with, with it this, 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 this sort of intimacy and care. Uh, the Hebrew word for watches over is a word that means to know intimately and to have concern for. And it's actually in a tense that would more accurately be is watching over. So it actually shows us that the Lord's watch upon the righteous is a close, caring, constant watch. And if you ever find yourself doubting this truth that verse 6 lays out for us, if you're ever doubting that God is watching over you as you continue aiming to live righteously, I just want to give you some encouragement. Stop looking at whatever's making you doubt and pick up your Bibles. Pick up your Bibles because what you'll find in God's word is a track record of God's. And you can look at that track record and, and, and you can look it over and, and, and see that time and time again, God has shown himself to be a God who does watch over the ways of the righteous. And then you'll find that time and time again, he's promised to continue watching over the way of the righteous. And because God is a God who keeps his promises, these promises can bolster within you a sense of endurance and confidence and and, 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 and ability to press on while you seek to, to, to live walking the righteous way. Time and time again, you will find it to be true that God watches over the way of the righteous. I grew up in rural southern Georgia. It's the kind of rule that makes a town have only one traffic light, two to three restaurants, one high school, and a whole lot of nothing that forced you to be creative if you were going to have some fun. And I grew up alongside a few cousins who were all around the same age as myself. And in an attempt to kind of create some fun for us, our parents bought us off-road vehicles. Where my grandma lived was the ideal type of situation for this. It was out in the country. My mom had a house on the same plot of land as hers. It was about 100 yards behind her house. And my grandma's sister and her daughter, they had a similar setup, just a few houses down the road. And in the area between my mom's house and, 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 and my grandma's house, uh, there was this path that you could kind of ride off-road or walk and cross a few neighbor's yards to get from one sister's house to the other sister's house. And so my cousins and I, we would often be at the wrong house when night fell. 
I sometimes be down at my aunt's house. He sometimes be down the path at my grandma or my mama's house. And because we were young boys, they weren't going to just turn us loose on our go-karts to ride down this path in the dark. So we'd have to walk it. (laughs) We'd have to walk this dark, scary for a young young boy path at night. But one thing I'll never forget is how our grandparents used to send us to walking down the path, but they'd stand outside and watch until they knew that we'd made it all the way. Now, as a kid, this was a big source of security. It made the dark path not be so scary. You know, my granddaddy's standing right back there, and even though he can't even see all the way down the path, I know that if I just call out, his watch is close and caring and constant enough that granddaddy would be there in no time. And the passage says, for the Lord watches over the way of the righteous. <laughs> I'm going to close with this. The last thing we want to do is find ourselves outside the watch of God. The psalm tells us that the Lord watches over the way of the righteous. And if you've ever been sitting there kind of, if you've been sitting there sweating during this sermon, because you know that you're not righteous, I got news for you. You ain't the only one. All of us at some point would have had to sweat like that. All of us still, if we're trying to find righteousness within ourselves, should sweat when we think about the judgment of God. Because the reality is that this psalm paints a picture of righteousness that no moral man is able to meet by himself. But what makes Christianity different from all other religions is the fact that one who is immortal and perfectly righteous, he's paved the righteous way for us, and he says if we're willing to follow him, then he will walk in front of us and allow his righteousness to not only be our God, but also to be the first thing God in heaven sees when he looks down the path to see who's coming. When the eye of God looks down the path, he sees Jesus' righteousness and it covering us as we walk behind him. Jesus went before us in perfect righteousness, and then he went before us in death by being killed on the cross for our sin. And if we repent of our sin, then he also goes before us in resurrection to new life and eternal hope.